It's Wednesday, October 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A clearer picture is starting to develop of the situation that unfolded on the set of Rust, where Alec Baldwin handled a firearm that discharged and killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins and injured director Joel Souza. We are learning that the assistant director who handed Baldwin the hot gun was also fired from another movie where a gun was discharged too. Sonia Rao, pop culture reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how some basic safety protocols were just not followed. Next, there's a new effort to eliminate gender bias in new toys on the market and also the marketing associated with them. In California, a bill was signed requiring retailers to have gender-neutral sections for children's items and toys. This is a move that many toy makers have been moving toward, but the law is bringing more attention to the issue. Allison Prang, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the fight over gender-neutral toys. Finally, this coming election day, police are on the ballot in Minneapolis. If passed, the ballot initiative called Question 2 would replace the police department with the Department of Public Safety that would include officers, but also mental health and substance abuse experts. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. She's a wonderful mom and a wonderful wife and was a, just a wonderful soul. And I really hope more people like her exist. Joining us now is Sonia Rao, pop culture reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Sonia. Thanks so much for having me. Wanted to uh, get an update on what's going on, uh, you know, what happened on the set of Rust, the movie with Alec Baldwin, where the unfortunate tragedy happened where... He uh, fired a weapon accidentally, it seems like, and uh, ended up killing cinematographer and injuring the director there on the set. We're starting to, you know, get a clearer picture of what happened. And, you know, it really seems like so many things were happening on the set. Some of the security protocols just didn't really seem to be followed. And uh, we're learning a little bit more about the assistant director, who it seems like a lot of this is is, uh, pointing towards. You know, it seemed that he was also fired over a gun discharge on another movie set. Like I said, just kind of pointing to some of these security protocols falling through the gap. So, Sonia, what are we seeing with the latest on all this? I think it's fair to say that, you know, if we're trying to see where it was that something went wrong, it was definitely in the handling of the weapon um, that Alec Baldwin was handed before this happened. I think, as you mentioned, the assistant director, Dave Holt, he was the one who handed Baldwin the gun. So it remains to be seen. Detectives are probably, I think, going to address this in the next few days. You know, what went on with that weapon, you know, what it was exactly that ended up, unfortunately, killing the cinematographer and injuring the director as well. But before that, this all happened during rehearsals. Alf Baldwin was, you know, rehearsing a scene, and it just so happened that Helena Hutchins and Joel Caesar were by the camera, and in the scene, you know, he presumably points the gun toward the camera. Those are details that we learned recently as well, you know, when exactly this happened, why it was that the cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, why she was near the camera in the first place, because oftentimes... The DP and the director, the DP director of photography, they're not actually standing by the camera. So there were a lot of questions prior to this moment. And I think we got that. We got um, more information on, again, as you mentioned, you know, the fact that Dave Halls was previously fired from a set where, you know, a firearm discharged. It's a very similar incident that happened there as well. So detectives haven't, you know, they haven't pointed to anyone just yet. But I think that we're going to see more details come out regarding that in the next few days. 
going a little more to kind of the chaos on the set, I guess, right? There was a lot of reports about crew members walking out on the film and protest of issues related to payment and housing. I guess they had to drive pretty far to go spend the night and then come back really early, you know, the long, the long working hours, all that. So there was a lot of turnover in crew and uh, the armorer that they used as well for this, you know, very green, uh, you know, very little experience mm-hmm. in that all of this kind of contributing and even going to where we saw the gun, right. Just sitting mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, from, this is all from the affidavit, right. Sitting on a, just sitting on a cart outside the building. Yeah. Right. And, and then, you know, with loose ammo around there, and that's where the the assistant director grabbed it and just said, Hey, that's a cold gun. You know, all of this stuff kind of just coming together and for a worst case scenario, really. Yeah. And I think, you know, the update that you mentioned, it had two different interviews. One was with the director who did address the fact that the camera crew had walked off that morning over labor issues, over payment, housing. And, you know, the exact issues were told to the detective by a camera person who ended up staying on set. So, yeah, these are, you know, verified firsthand the fact that there was just a lot going on that day. And, it you know, the picture that seems to be increasingly clearer here is that this was the result of maybe the production cutting corners, not really allocating as much time and, you know, resources as well to safety on set. There was a bunch of other items seized by sheriffs, as I mentioned, just boxes of ammo, things just kind of laying around, loose ammo, also not a good sign. Right. And, you know, I mean, the term cold gun that you mentioned earlier, an actor hears that and they say, oh, hey, okay, this is safe for me to discharge. This is safe for me to use. This won't actually, you know, injure someone the way it did. And so I think that sequence of events is where, you know, unfortunately, we saw many things go wrong and then this ended up happening. I think it really just comes down to safety and, you know, the mismanagement of this prop gun. And now the after effects, right? We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of calls for guns not to be on set. We have technology to be able to use a CGI to make the stuff look pretty mm-hmm. real. So there's calls for that uh, and reinforced calls for using seasoned professionals and union workers to avoid some of these things happening. You know, you might have to pay a little bit more, you know, it might be a low budget film and all that, but you know, in the long run, the safety is paramount. So we're seeing those two types of calls going out for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how this progresses, even from an artistic standpoint. Someone that spoke up, uh, Craig Zobel, he did Mayor of Easttown for HBO. He mentioned that, you know, in that show, they actually did use computer imaging. It wasn't all real um, or, you know, made to seem real. And that's in the sense that this movie was maybe trying to do. And I think it's, you know, HBO, it's high profile. I just think it's interesting to see the fact that, you know, a lot of artists seem to be reconsidering the way that they handle scenes like this and whether there are just safer ways to uh, move forward. Sonia Rao, pop culture reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That research came out. The California law was passed, which is going to start to be enforced in 2024. There have just been things to throw this issue further into the forefront. And I think it's safe to say that as a society, we're generally looking at this idea of gender more and with how people identify and whatnot. And obviously, that's going to translate into just consumer products and our daily lives. Joining us now is Allison Prang, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Allison. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about toys right now, gender neutral toys, the effort 
to eliminate gender bias from uh, the products that toy makers are making, even the marketing of these toys in store aisles and retailers um, is uh, starting to get a lot more attention. This comes after California Gavin Newsom signed a bill into law that requires retailers to have these gender neutral sections of children's items and toys. I think these are for bigger retailers. You have to have at least 500 workers, but it's still putting more focus on this. So, Allison, tell us a little bit more about this whole effort. Yeah, it's really interesting. So this is something that the toy industry and parents and whatnot have been grappling with, I think, for a while. And this new California law, it like you said, it applies to retailers with 500 staffers or more. So it's not going to apply, apply to your mom and pop type of shops. And it's going to require that they make gender-neutral toy aisles, regardless of whether toys in the past were marketed to a boy or, say, a girl. So, yeah, it's going to be a lot more inclusive to all genders, you know, whereas we might associate now boys like the color blue and play with trucks and girls like Barbies and play with dolls. This kind of seeks to disrupt that whole notion. And it's something the industry in some ways has been tiptoeing toward in that there have been other efforts to do this. So around the same time earlier this month, Lego published some research from the Gina Davis Institute on Media that kind of looked at children's play trends. And it showed that girls felt less constrained by gender biases in toys than boys did, which was kind of interesting. So that research came out, the California law was passed, which is going to start to be enforced in 2024. There have just been things to throw this issue further into the forefront. And I think it's safe to say that as a society, we're generally looking at this idea of gender more and with how people identify and whatnot. And obviously that's going to translate into just consumer products and our daily lives. And what we've seen already, though, is that a lot of retailers and toy makers have already started this trend. You know, they've already been picking up on on this stuff. You mentioned uh, Mr. Potato Head. They dropped the Mr. from that. But just even with other toy lines and things, it, that has already been started. Very true. Like the Toy Association, for example, stopped in 2017, they stopped giving the award for best boy toy and best girl toy. So that was kind of a step in that direction. Target stopped kind of orienting its aisles towards gender. So that was something also that was in 2015 that they started working on that. So it's been a really interesting pivot for some of these companies. I think you can argue that these are, you know, all small piecemeal steps, but but together they can kind of speak to, to something larger. A professor I was talking to kind of noted that. And, and she said, though, she also made the really good point. This is Rebecca Haynes from Salem State University. She made the really good point. She said there's still room to make progress on being inclusive. You know, she noted, for example, we could show boys and girls playing together and advertising that that would be a step in right. the right direction, that you, you know, like a toy catalog. So there are things like that. I think if the if this market, this toy market wants to push further that they're probably going to have to do. You know, people have also pushed back. It's important to note against the California law and other things like this. Governor Greg Abbott in Texas tweeted basically that this is government overreach. So not everyone's in favor of of moving in this direction. It's really important to to also note, right. I think. Yeah, I mean, um, in Texas for Governor Abbott, right, <laughs> he's fighting vaccine mandates that private companies are putting on their uh, uh, on their employees too. So, uh, you know, a little bit of both sides, having it on both sides with him uh, there. But going back to what you mentioned about having boys and girls play with toys together, I don't know why. The first example that came into my head was, you know, slime and things like that. And I would see a bunch of commercials of both boys and girls playing with those things. And I just look to my own nieces and nephews. They both love those things. Uh, my, my nieces do, my nephew does, and they play together with them. So, you know, maybe that is kind of one of those things that help kind of bridge that gap. Kids see groups of kids playing with things, boys and girls, and they'll be more likely to go that way. 
As far as the California law, this was proposed by California Assemblyman, Assemblyman Evan Lowe. How did that whole thing started? That's a great question. So, yes, Evan Lowe offered this bill. And what he said was, what he told me was that one of his staffers said they were shopping with their daughter and their daughter raised the issue of why to find a dinosaur or a periodic table do I need to go into the boys section? And it's it's a very valid question. You know, I mean, this is a perfect example of kids. They start to see what's sort of imposed on them by society from a young age. And so I talked to another parent who actually lives in New York. She has two girls and she was very in favor of the law. You know, I think it's safe to assume that all parents are in favor of this. You know, it's similar to we noted Governor Abbott is not. But some people definitely are. Allison Prang, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And so they want for a comprehensive team to be set up so that it's not just armed officers responding to every single incident, which is pretty much what it is now. And they believe that it clearly doesn't work. So they think the city needs to revisit how they approach public safety. Joining us now is Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Janelle. Thanks so much for having me. Wanted to talk about question two in Minneapolis. As election day nears, we're starting to see some more uh, things that are uh, pretty interesting that are out there. Obviously, you know, we're not voting for president this time. Things are a lot on a, on a lot smaller scale. But this uh, particular ballot initiative uh, could be very transformative there in Minneapolis. The initiative to replace Minneapolis Police Department with a Department of Public Safety. They would basically be getting rid of the police in some form. I think uh, the ballot initiative still says that police officers could remain, but that all has yet to be seen. And obviously, you know, after the death of George Floyd and, and all that, there was this big push to defund police, all that stuff. So it's kind of culminating into this ballot initiative. Janelle, help us walk through some of this. What is question two all about? So question two basically asks residents whether they want to replace the Minneapolis Police Department with a new Department of Public Safety. Now, critics of this measure say that this is just an attempt to defund the police, to get rid of the police chief, and to get rid of the police department in its entirety. But the people who petitioned for this item to get on the ballot, they said that that's not true. They said that police officers will obviously have to exist in the city because there will always be a need for an armed response in certain incidents. But what they want for this measure to do, should it pass, is to allow for social workers, for mental health experts, for people experienced in dealing with the homeless and issues of that nature to be able to respond to certain situations because homeless encampments are an issue across the country, including in Minneapolis, mental health issues people are suffering from there and dealing with. And so they want for a comprehensive team to be set up so that it's not just armed officers responding to every single incident, which is pretty much what it is now. And they believe that it clearly doesn't work. So they think the city needs to revisit how they approach public safety. A lot of the specifics are a little vague still. And even the specifics of what that new department would look like would give more power really to the mayor and city council there. I mean, they will be the ones who decide who would be the commissioner and how it's all set up. So, that, I mean, that's kind of an interesting angle to it. It is. And what's also interesting is that the current mayor 
Jacob Frey, he is opposed to it. He is running for a second term and he opposes this. He has said publicly that he doesn't believe that whoever is in charge of law enforcement should have to respond to an entire city council, so 13 people in addition to the mayor, which is what would happen if this measure were to pass. Currently, the mayor holds all authority over the police department, but several members of the city council, as well as many residents and organizations there, feel that that's not appropriate. It shouldn't just be one person who has complete control over the police department. And critics of the current mayor say that he has not done enough to clamp down on the police department. And so they believe that with more oversight, including the city council, it would change things in the city and it would improve the relationship between police and residents there. What do the polls say? How, How is this idea faring so far? What's interesting is that there haven't been a ton of polls done on it, but one of the recent ones done by a collective of media outlets in Minneapolis showed that the majority of residents do support this measure. At least the residents surveyed as this part as part of this poll that 49 percent said that they supported replacing the police department and giving the city council more authority over public safety. 41 percent said they opposed and 10 percent were on the fence. They were undecided. But it seems like people are open to this idea, and some people believe that the death of George Floyd helped to get more people closer to the conversation who were maybe outliers or who just didn't really think that the police department posed a threat to residents there. Some of the people I spoke to for my article, they said that city council members, some of them, and residents have been calling for years for there to be an overhaul of the police department and public safety in the city. But George Floyd's death definitely invited other people to the conversation, not just locally, but internationally and nationally as well. And some of the people you spoke to also, uh, you know, to their point, obviously, this would be a new system to be set up. And they say that there's a lot of unknowns. They don't want to be a test subject in this type of action, right? They'll have to rebuild from scratch. You know, it could be a total success, right? But what if it's a complete failure and they voted for it? And so there are a lot of people still are on the fence with it, don't know how to approach it just yet. I will say that pretty much all of the residents that I spoke to while I was in Minneapolis, I was there for a week and no one really that I spoke to said that they were thrilled with the current state of public safety there or with how the police department has operated over the years. They do believe that there are some changes that should be made, but what it comes down to is what those changes look like. Not everyone wants to just establish this brand new department. And I spoke to the Minnesota Attorney General, Keith Ellison, who you'll recall, it was his office that prosecuted Derek Chauvin and landed a conviction that sent him to jail for, he'll be in jail for more than two decades. But um, he said he's actually in support of the measure and he said it's time for change. And he understands that change can be scary and people may be reluctant. They may want to stay with something they know, even though they know that it's not working and they know that it's unhealthy. But he said he would encourage people to embrace change because he thinks that if the community really puts their heads together and finds a way to improve conditions there, he thinks that everyone will feel safe in the city and that it could just improve the standing of the police department and make residents feel safer there. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 